0: Welcome to Legalese. At LegalEase, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner.
1: Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship
2: and poor critical thinking.
0: No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for listening. This episode is going to be a continuation of part one of the American judicial system. Last time, we had Justice Ruth McGregor and presiding judge Janet Barton for the part one of this series, where they had a wonderful question and answer from me and Professor Charles Kairos, but this time, they'll be focusing more on a conversation between the two of them on a few topics that we have here today.
1: Yes, we noticed at the end of the last podcast that the judges very naturally began a conversation with one another, and we thought it was fascinating, so we thought we'd bring them back and uh, try to capture that on tape. And we have a number of questions, I'll just read uh, a few of them on the first page of my notes. One is about the jury system and our common law system and particularly in civil cases, does it work well? And then we have some general questions about what do trial and appellate judges want to say to one another uh, if uh, if they had the chance? How can they work together in tandem to uh, achieve justice? And maybe that's a good
2: place to start.
3: Well, if you want to talk about the jury system, <laughs> as far as jury system versus bench trials and
2: civil cases, Um, Yeah, and by bench trial, you mean a trial just to the judge? Just to the judge.
3: The jury system has been in place for centuries, so it's not a novel or a new concept. But the types of cases for which there was typically a jury are not the types of cases that we're hearing now. So I think juries work very well when you're talking about smaller cases, when you're talking about perhaps a medical malpractice case or even a car accident case. When you get into a complex Ponzi scheme or securities fraud, you impanel a jury and you expect them to make decisions regarding sophisticated factual and legal issues where generally accepted accounting principles followed. So it's very difficult sometimes, I think, for uh, cases of that magnitude and those types of issues to be heard by juries. And I often think the parties are better served if not by a bench trial, then in those cases, actually going in front of a mediator or arbitrator that is specializes in that area, rather than leaving their fate in the hands of a jury. But for the most part, I will tell you, having worked with juries for years, and Ruth saw this from a completely different perspective because she's reviewing the record um, and has to defer to the factual decisions because she doesn't have the witnesses in front of them. But My perception of jurors is they work very hard to follow the law. I think overall jurors do a great job. I've never had a case, whether it was criminal or civil, where the jury came back with a verdict and I sat there and looked at it and thought, what were they talking about back there? Because Mm -hmm. this makes no sense whatsoever. Most of the time it's the exact verdict I thought they would come back with. Sometimes if it's a close case, I could see where they would go either way. But I think that they work very hard to do a good job. They work very hard to follow their instructions and to follow the law. Occasionally you get a renegade juror who goes off base and does research on their own or hasn't been totally forthcoming uh, with their personal experiences. Uh, Sometimes their questions are a little puzzling in trials. Sometimes I think they take on the role of investigator as opposed to the role of juror when they know they can ask questions and they start going down paths that Even the attorneys have not gone down. But uh, overall, uh, I think our jury system works very well. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing attorneys don't appreciate, and if there are attorneys listening to this, I will tell them, the one thing I think attorneys do not fully appreciate is that jurors really like whatever judge they're in front of. And if attorneys are disrespectful to the judge, if they're making faces when they're annoyed at a ruling the judge made, the jurors pick up on that, and they are very unhappy, and they will make that known at the end of the trial if the attorneys go back and speak with them. But jurors tend to be very fond of the judge they're in front of. They remember that experience. I have people who come up to me all the time and say, oh, I was on a jury, and I just loved my judge. Um, and I don't think attorneys uh, fully appreciate that how perceptive jurors are on picking up on those things, because... They're there to protect us.
2: They are, and, and just picking up on, on something Judge Barton said, the juries really do a good job. It's surprising in some ways because of the complexity of some of the cases they have to hear. But they are so dedicated to following the law the judge gives them. And one of the things I think Arizona should be proud of is we have really been pioneers in finding better ways to use juries. It used to be, and it still is in many states and in some federal courts, the jury would come in, they'd hear the opening statements of the lawyers, and then they would start hearing the evidence. And at the end of all the evidence, which might extend over weeks or certainly days, Then the judge would tell them what the law is. And they'd say, now this is what you have to find to find the defendant responsible. This is the law. And then the jurors were supposed to think back to all the evidence they had heard and try to apply it to the law. But we started in Arizona maybe 25 or 30 years ago giving the jurors the law at the beginning in written form so they knew what they were looking for as they listened to the facts. We were one of the very first states to allow the jurors to ask questions, and of course they have to write them and the judge has to approve them, Um, and to allow jurors to take notes. Again, we would expect them to sit through weeks of trial without taking notes and then remember what they were supposed to what the facts were. So we've done a really good job. We've also made that the one day or one trial. Jurors used to be on call for a month and still are in many states and in much of the federal system. But now, jurors, once you are called, if you don't get called that day, you're excused for a year. And if you don't go to it, or if you're called for one trial, you're done again for a year. So we've really done things to make it better. And the other thing I think it's important with jurors is that A lot of people have done surveys of jurors after they sat. And while some are reluctant to come in and give up their day for $12 or 13 or whatever we pay them now, um, once they are finished, they are very positive about the jury system. And they all say, 90 some percent say, that if they had a trial, they would want it to be heard by a jury and not a judge. So I think that speaks very well to what happens in the jury room, because whatever happens as they reach their conclusion, it makes them have a lot of faith in the jury system. It's unique. I mean, there aren't a few other countries have jury systems, but we're, we're pretty unusual in that. Most are trials to a judge or a panel of one judge and a couple of lay people. Um, and it's something that served us well, but it's... It's difficult. I mean, it requires a lot of people in Maricopa County to fill the, the request for juries.
3: Yeah, I will tell you, we summons last year, last fiscal year, and our fiscal year runs from July 1st through June 30th. So our fiscal year of July 1st, 2017 through June 30th of 2018, we summons over half a million jurors. Now, that's just people who got summons in the mail, but we summons not only for our court, we also summons for the Justice courts, the City of Phoenix, and we bring grand jurors in at both the state and the county level, because most criminal cases proceed by way of grand jury, not by uh, direct complaint in, in Maricopa County. And of those 532,000 that were summons, we probably only brought in 10% of those, And so everyone always wants to know, well, why do you summon so many if you're only going to bring in 10% of those? But 10% is still about 53,000 jurors we would bring in in any given year. And one of the reasons is because Arizona is so transient. And so you may have people on your rolls, and we use names off the uh, voter registration rolls, a driver's license, and if you have a state-issued ID a lot of those people may have moved or uh, out of state or even if they've moved in state, we can no longer deliver it to their address. You have people in the military. So you'll have a lot of people who will not respond to the, to the summons. And so we have to over summons to make sure we have enough to fill all of our uh, requests for jury trials. Um, and the expense to, to our court, uh, we spent last year over $3 million on jury fees. And that includes what we pay them for the day if they're on a jury, we will continue to pay them. Most of that is in gas mileage that we reimburse. And then we have a lengthy trial fund where we pay jurors who are on longer trials up to $300 a day for their jury service. We're one of the few courts that, that does that as well. Um, but Ruth is correct. Almost every jury I did at the end of the trial, they were happy campers. They enjoyed their jury service. It. it They feel like they have let the court down if they can't reach a unanimous verdict in Mm -hmm. criminal or the six out of eight. And I've had jurors ask me at the end of a trial, did we fail in some way because we couldn't reach a unanimous verdict? And I would always explain to them, well, that's how our justice system is set up. You have to reach in a unanimous verdict, and you're not always going to get a unanimous verdict. So if you deliberated, if you listened to each other, if you heard everybody's viewpoints, And everyone, after having analyzed the evidence, just came up with different results. And yeah, you did your job. You did exactly what you were supposed to do as a juror. Um, But it's interesting. They feel like they've let the court down, or they want to know, what would I have done? And that's a question, obviously, I never would answer. But (laughs) (laughs) I would frequently get that. Well, how would you have decided the case? Well, it wasn't my job to decide the case. That was your job.
1: Well, that was a really illuminating explanation of how judges work with juries. How about judges working with each other? Trial judge, appellate judge, are there anything, any things that you would want to say to one another to talk about how the court system could work more smoothly?
2: Well, first we do talk to each other, appellate and trial judges. But one of the things I think that everybody keeps in mind is we all are aiming toward the same thing. We want to have as good a result as possible in whatever case was considered. and just for those, again, who aren't lawyers, the jobs of trial and appellate judges are really different. The trial judge is there either to oversee a jury or to sit the judge himself or herself as a fact finder. So they listen to the witnesses. They're the ones that you see on television where a is in the box and the jury is off on the side and the lawyers are making arguments and they hear all the evidence. They get all the documentary evidence entered into evidence. And then the factual decisions, was the car speeding or not? Was the car red or green? Um, Did this person promise something he didn't deliver? Those are factual issues, and those are decided by the judge or by the jury. Um, Appellate courts don't revisit those factual issues except in really unique circumstances. Janet mentioned earlier, the case comes to the appellate court on the record. That's all the evidence that was entered below. It's a transcript of the hearing, but of course not watching the witnesses themselves. And the appellate court's job is to say, were there errors of law made in the trial? Did the judge give an instruction that misstated the law or has the law changed in in some way? Did the did the, the jurors Uh, do research on their own, which would maybe have been decided by the trial judge also. But was there something about a legal issue that was the basis of the decision that was wrong? We're not going to, as an appellate judge, say, oh, we think the car was really red, not blue, if the trial judge decided that the car was blue. But on, on, on issues of law, the appellate court will review those. Every time a trial judge makes a ruling as to whether evidence should be admitted or not, that's an issue of law that can be reviewed. Now, appellate courts give a lot of discretion to the trial judges and we look for a way to uphold the decision made by the trial judge or the jury. But if there's an error of law and if it was important enough to have impacted the case, then the trial court can reverse the decision below and send it back down, usually for a new trial. And the appellate courts have to make their decisions by written opinion or an unpublished opinion, memorandum decisions, we call them in Arizona. But the opinions all have to be in writing the decisions so people can see how you got to the decision. When I talked to, to trial judges while I was on the appellate court, one of the things I always asked was that the trial judge They enter minute entries or minute orders, which are written explanation or a decision by the trial judge. And when the appellate court is looking at those, you look at the, the minute entries to see why the judge decided as she did. And they're very helpful in understanding what was going on and the reasoning of the trial judge. Some trial judges tried to keep those really short, thinking that, If they were wrong, the appellate court couldn't tell, and because we tried to find a way to uphold the decision, Janet's laughing, I had a trial judge tell me this. (laughs) I I was advised. And so we really want to have enough there so we can understand whether an error of law was made. And so to whatever extent trial judges can help the appellate court understand what was going on, which is also a help to the litigants, to the parties before them. That's really useful in, in reviewing the decisions. Now, of course, there are people who say, well, appellate court should be able to decide factual issues because now we have recordings of what is going on. So we don't have just the the transcript. We actually can see the witness. But so far, um, the court system is, has pretty roundly rejected that approach because of the difference in 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 responsibility for trial and appellate judges. The trial judge is sitting there, hears the people talking, sees what they look like, makes the kind of credibility determinations we all make every day in deciding whether a salesman is lying to us or telling the truth. They have to do that with the witnesses to decide whether they're, be, whether they're credible or not. So it's, it's two very different jobs. And when each is done well, It works together really well. The appellate judges also have a real responsibility to make sure that their written decisions are clear because trial judges have to follow them later. And if if we're sort of mushy in the way we set out our conclusions, that just makes it really difficult for trial judges in the future. Trial judges and appellate judges definitely talk to each other and we have a
3: very collegial uh, court system in arizona and a lot of the appellate judges who are now on the (coughs) court of appeals are judges various of them that came from the maricopa county superior court bench so i knew them when they were trial judges and and have been friends with them for years and uh, then you get to with the Supreme Court justices and you realize that they're not as scary as you think they are at first. And you get to make friends with them and have conversations with them and you develop relationships with them, which is why it's so easy for Ruth and I to sit here and talk to each other. But I think that all judges are, have an ego. So nobody likes to get reversed. So we get very sensitive about getting reversed and it does not happen on, on that frequent. Um, But I will tell you that since I have become presiding judge and I no longer hear cases, I have become much bolder in talking to whether it's uh, Chief Justice Bales or Sam Thumma, who's now the presiding judge on the Court of Appeals, about instances where—and it's been more on the Court of Appeals side, I would have to say—where I feel like they've overstepped their bounds um, and perhaps entered the, the realm of being a trial judge instead of the realm of being an appellate judge. You know, on appeal, oftentimes, you have to give the trial court discretion. Well, they forget to give the trial court discretion, and they decide the case on the basis of how they would have decided it. Often these are non-jury type cases, perhaps it's a juvenile case or a family case, how they would have decided it if they were presiding over it. And that's not their role, um, in my opinion, and I think most appellate judges would agree. I kind of differentiate it that trial judges are there to try to uh, see the forest for the trees. Um, we separate the wheat from the chaff. We're there to determine what's relevant what's not relevant. Who am I going to believe? Who am I not going to believe? And based upon the law in the state, now how am I going to decide this case? The appellate judges are there to make sure that every I is dotted and every T has been crossed. Did we follow the correct law? Did we apply the correct law? Did we follow the correct legal standard? And so they are kind of our check and balance in that regard, but they're not our check and balance in... And seeing the facts of the case and determining the facts of the case. And even though we do have video recordings now, I think if it ever got into that realm, it would almost be like, well, what's the sense of having the trial judge then? Mm -hmm. If you're just going to review everything and, and now be the final arbiter of the facts, why should the parties have to pay to go through this system?
2: I don't think most appellate judges would want to review the entire, because I think you're very aware that if the trial judges, that the camera is on the witness, well, there's a lot of other stuff going on in the courtroom, too. Um, There are reactions of people, there are reactions of the jury, there are uh, lawyers doing one thing or another, so I don't, I mean, the system works well to have the appellate courts review the legal issues, and I agree with Janet that some appellate judges, I think particularly if they were trial judges before, have a little tendency to wanna to go back and redo the role of the trial judge. I'll tell you something that happened to me once on the court. I read an article by um, a professor, I didn't know, I don't even remember what law school he was from, and he was pointing out that in a, he had taken a series of cases from the Arizona Supreme Court and had decided that, that I was the most Pro-prosecutor, I think. Be- I can't even remember one or the other because I, I always ruled in this one way. And I looked at it and I thought, gosh, I don't really think I rule that way. I really don't feel like I'm pro-defense or pro-prosecution. And so I went back and looked at the cases that he had relied upon where I had dissented from something or uh, I and one other one had dissented from the majority opinion. And what it turned out to be was my view was based upon that I thought it was with a discretionary decision of the trial court. And some of the others didn't agree with that. And that made sense to me because I really did try to be really mindful of the discretion given our trial judges because it's part of what makes the, dis- the system work. But it was interesting to see this that all of a sudden I was in one camp or the other. And he was looking at, in my view, the wrong question.
3: <laughs> and I think part of it too is how they write their opinions and decisions. Um you can reverse somebody politely, Mm -hmm. and we take that a lot better than when we feel like we are personally attacked. The Court of Appeals, rarely do you ever see that, or the Supreme Court, but on occasions they will come out with statements. It's kind of like when someone starts with all due respect. You know what they're really saying. (laughs) So on the writing part, uh, that was always something that I struggled with when I was actually hearing the cases and it's far more on civil than you would ever see on criminal, uh, how much do you write? And Because we don't have law clerks. Uh, we have huge caseloads. Uh, all research is done by us. So how much do you write? I don't have the time, I don't have the luxury to write the kind of decision that the Court of Appeals is gonna write. But I always felt like I needed to write enough so that the parties understood why I was doing what I was doing. And then if it goes up on appeal, the Court of Appeals would understand why I did what I did.
1: Well, Both of you have mentioned the importance of appellate court opinions being written clearly so that courts and litigants know how that law will apply to future cases. But every opinion has some play to it, some ambiguity, Judge Barton, when you run into an appellate judge at a reception, have you ever been tempted to ask, what did you mean by this passage in your opinion?
3: <laughs> uh, well, usually by then I know because I'm not timid, and I will just call <laughs> them up on the phone and ask them uh, half of the time, particularly if I'm no longer going to be handling the case. If I've rotated off, if it's come back down, and uh, some other judge is going to be hearing the case, then I, I have no problem chatting them up on, on that uh, on those topics, but it it is a uh, different writing style at the Court of Appeals than it is at the trial court. And I will tell you, I have the utmost respect for what they do, and I had the honor of being able to sit on the Supreme Court for a case uh, where one of the justices had to recuse. And so Chief Justice Bales asked if I would sit on the court and hear the case. And it was certified questions that came down from the Ninth Circuit. But Chief Justice Bales asked if I'd write the opinion, and I, I said, sure. And so I got to not only sit, but to write the opinion. And you learn, they don't like adjectives. So, because everybody critiques your writing. You know, when you're a trial court judge, you write it and, and you file it and it's over and done with. Well, they have a system where you write the draft opinion and then you circulate it amongst all the other justices and they edit your writing.
2: As do their law clerks.
3: Yeah. And I'm not used to having my writing edited by anyone else. So it was kind of a humbling experience in that regard. And, uh, you like I said, you learn quickly that they don't like adjectives, so all the adjectives get deleted out, and uh, it, it was. Uh, and they'd always say, "Well, here's my suggestions. You you don't have to incorporate them," and so then you create another draft and you circulate it. I told Chief Justice Bales that I greatly appreciated the opportunity to do that, but I'm very happy with my day job. I don't think I could do that on a day-in, day-out basis.
2: It is a very different kind of job. It's a very different writing experience, as, as as she discovered, because it is a collegial court, meaning not that we get along with each other, although in Arizona the justices do get along, but that you work cooperatively. And so an opinion that comes out, although it has an authoring justice, is the opinion of the court, And that means that you have to get agreement on the language, especially language that goes to the heart of the case, language as to exactly what the court is holding. Everyone, or at least a majority, has to be comfortable with that language. And it is a a different kind of approach. It does make you really appreciate, I, I think, the assistance that other people can give you in really clarifying, because you might write something that you think is really clear and one of the other justices will say i thought we decided this and you say oh yeah i see how that could be read as saying something else and so it gives you a chance to really work on the language um and i i i always told my law clerks i said you know because they would always do the draft of an opinion and i would say If we publish this and somebody says, I really disagree with you, that's fine. We expect not everybody will agree with us. But if we publish it and somebody says, I don't understand your holding, then I said we failed in our job. Then we haven't done what people have a right to expect us to do. We have to not only decide the case, but we have to explain our decision in a way that the can understand, law professors can understand, trial court judges can understand, court of appeals can understand, so that everybody is clear on what the law is in Arizona. And it is harder than you might think. Oh.
3: Yeah. I mean, I thought I was a pretty good writer until I tried that, and I was like, <laughs> whoa.
0: This is wonderful. I mean, I. mean, I've never heard any any of this, and I, I'm sure that the audience hasn't either, because you, again, and I, I said this with the part one episode, you see our legal system on television, and it really does not depict what goes on behind the scenes or even during the trial or yeah. what goes on inside the chambers. So this is, I think, very beneficial, not just for us, but for the audience members. So we, not we, you two have wonderfully discussed uh, what goes on between judges, what goes on the law clerks on writing the first draft of an opinion. How about during the trial process, especially with touchy cases like juvenile? Are there certain tough spots where you have a defendant or a plaintiff that is visibly crying? We've heard of loud defendants and plaintiffs who are either shouting or angry, visibly angry. I know you said that the jury notices that happening with the attorney's. How about the plaintiff and the defendant who's present? Are there some things that the judges can do to calm that situation, or is that something that the judges don't even try to tame, so to speak?
3: Well, I think it depends on the situation and the circumstance, and in the juvenile cases and in the family cases, there is no jury. The judge decides all the issues. So what a judge can put up with and what a judge would allow to happen, Uh, when the judge is the finder of fact is going to be completely different than what what you would allow to happen if you have a jury in your courtroom Um, but there are are always uh, difficult uh, cases and and in juvenile and in in family the common denominator is whenever you're dealing with someone's children uh, it's a very difficult situation and so when in juvenile I think the hardest cases and where the you see the most emotion are in cases where you're being asked to sever parental rights, because that's like the ultimate death sentence between a parent and a child. And that's a very uh, tough decision for judges to have to make. Sometimes it's, it's fairly easy because of what has happened, but you have to remember that even when uh, it's obvious that severance is the correct path to go down, And even when these parents have done horrific things, these kids still want to go back to the parents. So it's the kids' feelings that you have to take into account as well. And that's one of the standards for severance is what's in the best interest of the child. It's not just if there's a statutory ground to sever, then it's whether severance is in the best interest of the child. And that bond where you see what these people have done and these kids still want to go back to the parent, still want to be part of the parent's life, uh, those, those are the tough cases. In family, it's just more. Uh, There's, st- it's just so raw. Um, when one side wants wants the divorce and the other side doesn't, it's still so raw that they do erupt in court and they erupt on a fairly frequent basis. Family is the most dangerous assignment for a judge. Judges receive far more threats in family than on any other rotation. People think it's criminal. Mm. The, the, the defendants like the judges for the most part. They're smart enough to realize that judge's going to sentence me. So they're nice to the judges. In criminal, it's the defense counsel who are looked upon not quite as favorably by the defendants because they don't, they don't understand why they can't pull that rabbit out of the hat like they see on TV and, right. and, and get them out of the charges or can't get a better plea deal. So they tend to go after their attorneys and, and ask for a new attorney a new attorney, there's really no threat against the judge in criminal, or rarely is there a a threat against the judge in in criminal. It's in family that you see that, because you're taking away uh, perhaps time with the child, or you're restricting their time with the child, you're dividing up monetary assets, having them take on debt. It's uh, when you're dealing with their property and their kids, they do tend to get emotional, you do see outbursts, we do get threats, go out on social media and threaten judges or uh, criticize judges overtly. When it comes to JPR time, we have one judge that hasn't been on family. Well, he did a civil rotation after family and now he's on criminal. So it's been probably six or seven years. And every time that judge stands for retention, they still post signs and talk about what what the judge did in a family case. So it you know, it's
2: part of the job. Um. And don't you think different judges have very different ways of dealing with oh, that? Everybody uh, has Because a different the judge's style. personality comes out in this too, and one judge reacting to a crying litigant is very different from another judge. They We didn't see that much, of course, in the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court because most people were represented by lawyers and the lawyers were just making legal arguments. Occasionally, I mean, I can remember several times when someone representing themselves, often in a workers' compensation case, where, um, when I was on the Court of Appeals, and if compensation had been denied, they had a right to appeal to the, the Court of Appeals. And again, this was this was a very emotional thing for them. They thought they were entitled to compensation under the law, and they had been told they were not. And they didn't understand, of course, what the appellate court could do and couldn't do. And sometimes in other instances where we had people representing themselves, and then, you know, it's a very, it's kind of an awkward situation if you're in the court of appeals. I mean, three judges are sitting raised up. Behind a bench and the person who is the litigant and also presenting argument is down by the the lectern And so in that instance the only thing I think mostly we could do was just say would you like a few moments? Um, wait until you're ready and then you can go ahead again, although we did have one man once who started his Argument and it was workers compensation and I happen to be the presiding judge on the panel on the Court of Appeals and and um, So just to help him along before he started, I said, Mr. Jones, um, would you tell us what you would like us to do? And he said, well, I was kind of hoping you would tell me. (laughs) He didn't have any idea. And then he started crying. And then he reached into his briefcase for something. And the security guard was all concerned. But he took out this sheath of papers that he had. And of course, all you can do is just trying to kind of keep things calm, and give him a chance to say whatever he wants to say. And the other lawyer in that case used the great good sense of only talking for a couple of minutes because there was no legal issue really presented. But it's difficult because as a judge, whether it's a trial judge or an appellate judge, it's your, not your job to make it seem as if you are siding with one side. And so it looks as if judges are being very hard-hearted and stone-faced sometimes when somebody is in obvious emotional distress but they can't do anything that makes it look as if, or they shouldn't, that makes it look as if they prefer that party over the other, or that they are giving them extra points because they're emotional. So it's, it, it calls on a lot of skill, I think, for our trial court judges, particularly, to deal with those litigants. But as Janet said, it's kind of part of the job for them. And one of the things I
3: did try to do, is another judge had given me this advice, and I tried to implement it, is if you talk very softly when they're going through that, it, it tends to help calm them down. And I'm really not a soft speaker. I'm more the person who never needs a microphone. So it, it was difficult, but if you talk very slow, you try to slow yourself down and talk <laughs> in a very soft tone, then they start calming down a little bit. Or you do like Bruce says, and, and I offered to give them a break. Would it help if, if we took a break for 15 minutes? Would, would that help you? and 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 try to handle it that way. But you, uh, I don't want to say you get desensitized to it, but you do get used to it to a certain extent. You know the emotions are going to run high uh, when you go in on a family case, because typically you've done the hearing, so you kind of know the dynamics of these parties. And you know when the emotions are going to run high and uh, and when the cases have a tendency to perhaps get out of hand.
1: Shall we talk about Technology in our system of justice. Yes. What are the technological developments uh, that are taking place now or that you can see coming in the future?
3: I think the biggest change in the practice of law that I have seen in the 33 years I've been in the judicial system or I've been in the legal system is technology. Mm -hmm. You know, when I started as a first-year associate, back in 1985 your secretaries didn't have computers they typed it out on a typewriter and if it was a long document we had we I worked at a large firm at that time it was the largest firm in Arizona they would take it down to our word processing department and they would scan it in and then you'd work off these long sheets of paper where there were drafts and but if it was just a short letter, they typed it on the typewriter. And you felt really guilty making any changes because if it didn't, if it changed the where the paragraph was gonna end or something along those lines, they'd have to retype the letter.
2: Uh now well, and think of appellate briefs. I mean oh. when you started, certainly when I started in 1974, we had to first of all in Arizona we had in the Ninth Circuit too you had to write your appellate briefs on a sheet of size paper that was not used any place other than appellate briefs. I don't know, it was seven by five or something. It was ridiculous. And then you had to have five copies. And that meant that your secretary, writing on an electric typewriter, would roll this in with four carbons, so you would have four or five copies, however many copies. And so any time a mistake was made, you either had to white out all the copies and correct it, or you had to start all over. And then when it all got done, you had to send it to a binder because you couldn't just submit it on the paper. It had to be bound, and you didn't have any way to do that in a law firm, so you had to send it off to be bound and sometimes to be printed separately. It was a ridiculous amount of work, and for sure, you didn't want to change anything unless it had to be changed because that might mean. Might mean that all those pages had to be redone. So I do think one of my my theories is that one of the reasons that opinions and briefs and documents have gotten longer and longer is because it's so easy to change them now it used to be so hard you wouldn't do that and you didn't want to write a really long brief because every page had to have all those garments now of course we can do it all at any rate it's been a big change and you
3: don't have to pre-plan the time out to get the binding done you can work on it up until the last minute
2: right and then file it electronically
3: but i think technology without a doubt uh, has been the biggest change. And the problem when you're working in the judicial system is, you know, we're, we're a governmental entity. And governmental entities are not necessarily known for keeping up on cutting edge technology. So technology has been a challenge. And, and you're also fighting a system where you have a wide disparity in technological abilities of the people on the bench. And you, you run into the philosophy of, well, we've always done it this way. Well, just because you've always done something a certain way doesn't mean that you have to continue doing it that way. So you have to get over that hurdle as well, but I think technology is, has come so far. Uh, one of my objectives as presiding judge is try to make us one of the most technologically advanced courts in the country, and we do a lot towards that, uh, but people expect it. You know, mm-hmm. when we started practicing law, Amazon had not even started. You know, Chief Justice Bales <laughs> talked about this at a conference. If you had gone out and asked people 22 years ago what comes to your mind when you say Amazon, it had been a rainforest in South America. It would not have been an online shopping right. extravaganza. So it's just, you know, it's just come so far. Um, specialty courts is, is a rather new uh, phenomenon with courts, it, it certainly wasn't there when I started You mean the courts for mental
2: health issues mental, and drug issues, yeah, that sort DUI, of thing, DUI, right?
3: uh, homeless court, veterans right. court, we have a lot of specialty courts, and, and nowadays if you don't have a specialty court, you're behind the times. Uh, diversion mm-hmm. is another concept that's come along more recently on how we're not going to necessarily pursue the criminal charges, we'll put them into a diversion program. If they successfully complete it, then we can dismiss the charges. So there's a lot of new things, but I think by far it's been technology and what, yeah. and what the public expects out of the courts. Sure,
2: and people think that they should um, you know, be able to file things electronically. Now for the most part they can. Um, it was while I was on the Supreme Court that we first introduced electronic filing and that was a big deal. Um, and we had to have all sorts of outs for lawyers who weren't willing to file electronically. Uh, we had to make special provisions for them, and initially it was only the first pleading that could be filed electronically, and then gradually expanded, and expanded from one kind of case to all different kinds of cases um, to have fill-in forms which weren't no one even had thought of beforehand, and so it, it all helps. It helps to have those things available online. It helps to have explanations and videotapes online, so kind of like you know, the court YouTube where people can go and see how to do something. Um, but it might raise expectations, sometimes higher than, than we can fulfill for people who think they can just go in and find the form online and get their case going and somehow they'll figure it all out along the way. Um, but we couldn't, we couldn't run the court system without technology. Um, I don't know how we would manage the volume of cases that we have now without this. Um, when you think about this, all you, every time somebody filed something, it was hand noted by the clerk's office and then hand filed in one copy of, of the record. There was only one copy of the record. There was no other way to get to it except to go down to the court and ask to see the file. And make copies if you needed to of the documents. Um, so the volume we can cover is is much better, much and I, higher now.
3: And I think technology has its good points and its bad points. Right. You know, I haven't seen a paper file in years. And and Ruth was correct. It used to be the only way the public could access a court file would be to come down to the courthouse, go to the mm-hmm. clerk's office, and and request the file because the clerks uh, are are the keeper of the record. That's their their job in the state pre- predominantly to be the keeper of the record. But on the other hand, I have concerns of how much information should we be making accessible? Mm -hmm. Just because you can provide it electronically, should we be providing electronically? Should your neighbor be able to sit there with a cup of coffee in the morning in their pajamas and look up your divorce file and get that information, which may have some sensitive information in it? Mm -hmm. Should kids, your schoolmates, be able to sit at home in the evenings and access your parents' divorce files? Mm -hmm. because they can get online with the court so you know it it has its good points but it also has the issues of how much information should we be pushing out there
2: right and because this information for the most part has always been public it's nothing that was hidden the court system is an open system but it was difficult somebody really had to make an effort to find it and so the difference now is that it's easy to find and it is true you know employers like having this they like having access to the the criminal law and see whether somebody has been charged with something or convicted of it Um, I can I can easily see kids looking up their own parents and other parents online but I think it's important that this this never was secret information No, it was always publicly available and those things that that were Made confidential within a record, still are confidential and they're not available online. But it has changed in every way the, right. how easy it is to get to the information.
3: You know, and the reality is these kids are not going to come down to the court to go to the clerk's office to look up these files. But when they're killing time in the evenings and they've got to just have to open their laptop and log into a website, it's much easier and much more. Attempting to, to look up that information. So we've made it a lot easier, but is that always better? But, Bruce, 100% correct. We try to be a very transparent and an open court. Um, and these records are public records. It's just um, far fewer people access them when they actually have to come down to court to do so.
1: Well, if we look through the window of this room behind you, you'll see the stacks of hardbound law books that we all worked with when that was the only way to research the law. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, most of the studying of the law and researching the law is done online or on computer. To take it a little bit further, we've heard predictions about artificial intelligence taking over some of the duties of attorneys and judges. Can you foresee a time when you can take the human element out of judging, except to the extent it could be programmed into a computer, or is that human element a necessary factor in dispute resolution?
2: I don't don't know. I mean, artificial intelligence, by its very term, means that we're using intelligence. Um, Could we develop a decision tree that would resolve most legal issues? We probably could with enough information input. The human element, I think would be hard to replicate, particularly in the trial courts. We're managing the parties. Now, maybe all the parties present their argument not by themselves, but through some, human in, some artificial intelligence. But um, it would be really interesting if somebody would be able to input enough information, for instance, for the United States Supreme Court, although clearly the human element enters there, but to input all of this and then to take cases that were coming up for decision and having put in all of the precedent and everything from the the courts of appeals to see what artificial intelligence would predict would be the outcome and then see what it actually would be. That'd be really interesting. Um, I think that artificial intelligence will be able to narrow the scope of the issues that are before court, will be able to help doing the analysis I think there'll always be a human element there. But what is happening with technology and AI is just so amazing. Every time I type an email and the suggested end to my sentence comes up, I go, <laughs> What? Yeah, that's what I want to say. <laughs> so I I mean it it's just advancing so fast. I, I'm hesitant to predict that anything is impossible. Yeah, I'm I'm on the
3: never say never. <laughs> yeah. Just of what I've seen in my lifetime, but uh you know, on the United States Supreme Court, we can't even get them to uh, broadcast their oral arguments. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they are long a long ways from reference. going to artificial way. intelligence. Yes. But it's uh, it's interesting. Can I see it ever being there? Sure. You could probably see it coming into play at, at some point. But I think we're so far away from that right now. But uh, can you do them on a test basis? Probably. But as far as rolling them out as standard uh, for automobiles, I think we're still a ways away from from that hitting the market. So, and, and there's going to be a lot more uh, there's a lot more profit in that area than there's going
2: to be in selling artificial intelligence. <laughs> that's true. That's to true. The somebody <laughs> has to put the input in to develop yeah. it, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, we are trying to develop actually a chat bot for our uh, our website, particularly on family issues. That would help. They could just type it in and the chat bot would provide the answer and the information but it is a time uh, consuming process because you have to input all the information in there and and have it come up with uh the information that it will need and the scenarios and the questions
2: that's true well just today i saw mr musk predicting that in the not too distant future we will all be part human and part machine so who knows what's coming
0: yeah there was a an article from I think it was Now This, I follow that just because they, they, they put out so many interesting discoveries. So I follow that and they said that they were able, a group of scientists were able to connect three brains together and these three individuals were able to speak to each other telepathically. So I don't know. I didn't really get a chance to read the full article, but <laughs> I was stunned. So it's in my reading I am list. It's well. It's yeah. in my reading yeah. list to to revisit. But yes, nothing surprises me. Yeah, you do just take on know.
1: group intelligence.
0: I mean, it's
3: just uh, it's just amazing how far technology has come.
0: I think we have time for one more question. So this actually leads us to paralegals, which is another element of our system. We, we, we touched on AI, law clerks, judges, the jury, uh, even the litigants, uh, but paralegals, of course, have their, their space in all of this. So more specifically, in small claims, evictions, many divorces, or paternity actions, should a party be able to utilize a trained legal professional? So, for example, someone who is trained in a
2: particular area but hasn't gone to law school. Well, this is, this is an issue that the legal profession has been dealing with for a long time. Um, I went back just to see um, the earliest change, I think, that came in Arizona was actually by constitutional amendment when the Constitution was amended to allow real estate agents and brokers to complete documents necessary for the transfer of property. That had been regarded as a practice of law. Now... We've had changes since then that are not based in the Arizona Constitution, but we've looked at things like some years ago, a lot of people were going to document preparers for their, their divorces, uh, for basic legal issues, and the document preparers were completely unregulated. So the Arizona Supreme Court, which has control over the practice of law in Arizona, decided to regulate them. We didn't, they didn't say you can't do this, But they have to meet certain standards and qualifications because people are relying upon them there are There are a lot of areas where I think we could make better use of people who are trained paralegals Uh, We see it happening a lot in medicine with nurse practitioners and physicians assistants who 20 years ago didn't exist and today can treat and prescribe medications and all I think we're moving toward giving a bigger role to people who have training who are not lawyers. Um, The challenge is always the risk-benefit analysis. There's a benefit because people have someone to help them. There's a risk if that person professes to have knowledge they don't have and actually causes more harm than the good that they do. But the, the profession is looking at this and trying to find ways to allow people, I mean, it's not always true that some help is better than none. And that's the line you have to walk, I think, is to decide what kind of training is needed to allow persons who are not lawyers to do legal assistance in particular fields. We've done it for a long time in administrative law courts where uh, employers can have a representative who's not necessarily a lawyer and so forth. So we have a lot of background and knowledge to draw on with this. But the law is is slow to adapt, I think, and lawyers are slow to accept help from non-lawyer professionals. But what what do you see in trial court? I think we're moving toward that.
3: I think we are too, and I will tell you, the Supreme Court just formed a task force for the delivery of legal services, and that's one of the things they are going to be looking at, the Arizona Supreme Court. And Justice Timmer, I think, is chairing it, and she'll be the Vice Chief Justice in starting July 1st of 2019. I'm a huge proponent of exploring this and hopefully implementing it just because to me it's an access to justice issue and I've always been an advocate for access to justice. You know particularly when you look at some of these areas like evictions and only if it's for the purpose because the, the reality is eviction laws are written in such a way that uh, oftentimes the tenant has no defense to the eviction. Uh, that's just the reality of the way the law is written. But it would probably be, in those cases, very helpful to have someone who could sit down and explain that to them rather than it being the landlord attorney. You know, Because then they never know, am I getting the full story? And the judges don't have time and, uh, because of the volume of cases to really... Uh, Sit down, and we're we're not allowed to give legal advice anyway. So it would be nice to have someone there, whether it's a navigator, uh, however you want to phrase it, to be able to to give them that comfort that you you really have no legal defense to this. And I'm sorry, it's the way the laws are written, but under the law, they're going to be able to evict you. And so I think there are areas, family law, where they where they need some basic help. What should I ask for? What is legal decision making? You typically have to sit down and explain to these people here's what this term means Uh, here's what legal decision making means and so i i think that it's 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 overdue in some areas it's a touchy subject because you know the attorneys obviously you spend a lot of money to go to law school and and you don't necessarily want to see your work being done what you paid dearly for by someone that doesn't have that law degree so are, are there going to have to be restrictions sure there's going to have to be restrictions on what they can do but you know navigators you you would like to say the court could employ them but the problem we run into is we can't give legal advice and so it would be viewed as giving legal advice you know we have navigators at our court but they don't give legal advice they just give information How how it will ultimately shake out, because if they're not employed by the court, then they're obviously going to want to charge because they need to pay their bills. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but I know some states have looked at it. Some states are actually doing it. Washington State has a program, and and I think they take a test, and and I think you could limit them to just in one area. You know, you're just going to do evictions, or you're just going to help in family cases, but... Mm -hmm as an access to justice issue, people um, people can't afford attorneys in many instances. And, mm-hmm.
2: and and we're moving slowly in this, and I think that's okay, because we don't want people to be getting bad advice when they go to somebody they think can be helpful to them. So I think it's okay to, to move carefully for the, the Supreme Court to look at this, to decide how we can help with delivery of legal services. Um, there might be a role for law students to play beyond, beyond the student practice rule, but to define really carefully the areas in which people can help, what training they need to provide help in there, what kind of licensing they need, if any, and, and how we're going to watch over that. I mean, judges and lawyers are subject to discipline. Um, judges are subject to performance evaluations. And so all of these things have to be looked at carefully. It's not a simple solution, but I think, I think we're moving towards we are finding moving. one.
3: And, and I think what you have to uh, keep in mind also is a lot of these eviction cases are heard at the justice of the peace level. That's basically where you're gonna hear the majority of the residential landlord-tenant type eviction cases. And under Arizona law, to be a justice of the peace, you don't have to have a legal degree you don't even have to have a college education so they can decide the case shouldn't we be have people that can help some of these litigants that are at the same educational level perhaps as as a person who's going to decide the case and the justice of the peace do a fine job deciding the case it's you know but they they receive training they're mm-hmm. trained
0: well, i think that just about wraps it up i mean i i promised you guys an hour and i think we're just a bit over and I know you two are very busy and I appreciate your time we both appreciate your time another wonderful session
2: thank you for asking Paris us of to come course. back thank we you so it. much yeah. our pleasure <laughs>
0: our pleasure we, we had a blast last time so we just we couldn't help ourselves inviting you for a part two thank you Yeah, thank you so much
1: it just keeps getting better I know it really does
0: <laughs>